right, our text today is Ezra chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, the verses I'm going to read will be up on the screen, but if you have a device or a Bible and you'd like to turn there, we're going to read in just a few minutes uh, most of that chapter or pieces of that chapter. I'd like to ask you a question, though. I'm assuming that in, in this group that at least a few of you have taken one of those DNA tests to check out your lineage, your ancestry. Uh, how many of you have done that? Have you participated in that? Yes, several of you have done that. And so, you know, you spit in the tube and you send it into the company and they send you back a report. And then you read this report of where you're from, your, your lineage. And it's, it's really kind of a, a fun thing to do because as you're reading it, you, you, you realize you're reading something about yourself. There's a television show called Finding Your Roots. Henry Louis Gates Jr. hosts this, and, and they do this very thing. So they find some well-known people, and then all the researchers do a deep dive into their history. They do, they do DNA. They go into the archives. They go into public records. They go through photo albums. They look for lost letters, and they put it all together in what they call a book of life, and then they sit down with this person and they walk through their whole history. Everything that they were able to put together and gather up and walk them through. This, this is your life. This is your heritage. This is your lineage. And there's a couple of things that, that take place when you do this. So even though they're sitting there and when you get your report, you're, you're reading about or learning about people that are not you other people, there is a sense that as you're getting this information, you realize it's telling you something about you, about who you are. It shows us something about ourselves, and oftentimes it tends to have an effect on us. Now, sometimes you learn things that are really positive. You know, oh, your great, 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 great grandfather was courageous and heroic and fought in this war and made a real impact on society and you're oh you're from a long line of academics and real contributions in this area or in that area and so you feel a little bit honored and a little bit proud and you and it kind of perks you up and it's like I want to measure up to my lineage those are my people and I want to be like them and then there's some that are not so encouraging so you find out you've come from a long line of bootlegging bank robbers. And most of the records we found were the county jail records where we found all your uh, ancestors. And so now all of a sudden you realize you're hearing something that you kind of feel is about you. And maybe that motivates you and perks you up. It's like, I've got to break this chain here. We've got to stop this lineage. And, and, it, and it speaks to you. And it affects you. And it can change you also tends to put things into perspective. You begin to realize that there's something bigger going on than our little lives and just our lives. We're a part of something bigger and broader than just our lives, which all of us on a regular basis get so myopic and consumed in the details of our own personal little lives. And all of a sudden you start reading about and thinking about your lineage in your history and you begin to think bigger and broader and you realize ah oh, I have to think differently and have some perspective because I'm part of something bigger than myself Ezra chapter 2 is one of those biblical ancestry.com chapters it is giving us a list of names there's over 125 names in Ezra chapter 2 it's one of those boring chapters that you don't want to read. It's one of those chapters you come to in your daily devotion. If you've got a reading plan through the Bible and you get to Ezra chapter 2, it's like, okay, now you're kind of wrestling. Or maybe you've got a little legalist going on side. You're kind of wondering, do I really have to read this? Is it important? Is there going to be some value in me reciting all these names? I can't even pronounce these names. How, what, what am I supposed to do with this? The context as we've been hearing over the previous couple messages, that God is reestablishing his people in Jerusalem and in Judah. Reestablishing his people after they have for centuries forsaken him. And now God is reconvening them, remaking them, reestablishing them. 
Imagine with me if we could take a spiritual DNA test, spit in the tube, send it up to heaven. God has all the archiving research. Angels go to work, go through the archives, and find and trace your spiritual lineage. How did the gospel find its way into your life? And then they send down a packet, I mean a packet, a list of names of all of history, of how the gospel found its way into your life. And you flip back page after page, and you get way, way back into the stack, and you find out something amazing. You find a name that's in Ezra chapter 2. You come across the name, and it's like, where did I hear that name before? Oh, yes, because I disciplined myself to read that whole chapter and say it out loud, and I recognize that name, and there it is on my spiritual DNA report. Because God was at work doing something, reestablishing his people, regathering his people. So in Ezra chapter 2, we have a chapter that while it is all about other people, people we don't know, people whose names we can't even pronounce, and yet it teaches us about ourselves. We're reading, in a sense, something about ourselves. Because what God was doing then led to what God is doing now in your life and in my life. It is a chapter about being the people of God. And it teaches us that you and I are a part of something much bigger than our own individual, personalized lives. Ezra chapter 2 however boring and however unimportant it might appear to us, is an important piece in the history of the people of God. And it's there for our learning, even learning about ourselves. I want to break down and make a few points from this chapter. First point will be the God of the people of God. Secondly, the people of the people of God. And thirdly, the vitality of of the people of God. The title is The People of God. If you didn't get that already. Okay, I'm going to try and read some of it. I won't read it all, but you should. The verses will be on the screen. Hopefully I'll follow along with, with what we've got up there well. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Now these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Syriah, Reliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvi, Rehem, and Bana. The number of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Parash, 2,172. The sons of Shephatiah, 372. The sons of Arah, 775. On goes the list. Join me in verse 36. The priests, the son of Jedidiah, of the house of Jeshua, 973. Skip ahead to verse 40. The Levites, the sons of Jeshua and Cadmiel, of the sons of Hadaviah, verse 43. The temple servants, the sons of Ziha, the sons of Hasipha, and the sons of Tabioth. And pick up in verse 59 to the end. The following were those who came up from Tel Milah, Tel Harsha, Cherub, Adan, and Immer. Though they could not prove their father's houses or their descent, whether they belonged to Israel, the sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, and the sons of Nakoda, 652. Also the sons of Hakaz and the sons of Barzillah, who had taken a wife from the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and was called by their name. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there, and so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. 
the governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until they should be until a priest should be available to consult the Urim and the Thummim. The whole assembly together was 42,360 besides their male and female servants of whom there were 7,337. And they had 200 male and female singers. Their horses were 736. Their mules were 245. Their camels were 435. And their donkeys were 6,720. Some of the heads of the families, when they came to the house of the Lord, that is in Jerusalem, made freewill offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priests' garments. Now the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their towns and all the rest of Israel in their towns. I want to point out first the God of the people of God. A point not specifically in the chapter, but a point not to be overlooked about the chapter. The people of God only exist because of the God of the people of God. This would, chapter would not exist were it not for what God had done. There's only one reason this list could possibly exist because God himself brought it about. Derek Kidner in his commentary says, this chapter, however uninviting it may seem, is a monument to God's care. Many people who argue against God, against religion, make the assumption that people exist and then fabricate a God. People exist. They feel a need. They feel insecure. So they make up a God. They fabricate. They write a book. They come up with a concept that would meet that felt need, that sense of insecurity. Oh, let's imagine that there is a God and we will worship this God and that will satisfy and complete this cycle of this inner need that we feel. This is often true. But the Bible tells us an entirely different story. This is a story about how God calls people. Not how people call God or make God or think up God. God calls to himself. God called Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Uh, Abe had plenty of gods in the land that he could worship and turn to. He was not looking for another god. He was not looking for the god. He had all these gods all around him, but the god appeared to Abraham, came to Abraham and said, Abraham, I'm calling you out from all these gods. I'm singling you out and calling you to myself. Ezra chapter 2 is a list of people that for centuries have a long history of rejecting God. It's why they were sent into exile in the first place. They were ignoring God's word. They were rejecting God as the God. Now they were fine with God existing alongside of all the other gods, but they would not accept the reality that God would be their exclusive God, the God, the God who created all things, who was there to be their God and for them to be his people, excluding all other gods. So God sent them into exile, and so they're no longer a people. They no longer have their homeland. They no longer have their cities. They're, they're no longer in their own language. Now they're in a foreign place in a foreign language with foreign schools and foreign education and foreign concepts and foreign economy and everything has changed. They're no longer a people. They just kind of evaporated. They got sent out. It just, they don't exist anymore as a nation. They're lost. They have become precisely what their hearts had led them to be not 
God's people. Just another group of people living out in the world among all the other gods. That seemed to be what they were clamoring for, and that is precisely what the Lord led them into. Now we're in Ezra, and God steps in again and begins calling them back. The Bible is all about God bringing about a people that belong to him, which leaves the people of God to be a very God-centered people. Very God-centered in an, in an unusual way. Let's just imagine. Okay, here we are in the foothills of the San Gabriel Mountains. I love the mountains. I've been here for 30 years. I never get tired of looking up and seeing the mountains. You can walk outside and look up the mountains. They're beautiful. Well, why don't we just agree together? Let's call ourselves the people of the mountain. Let's be together, the people of the mountain. I love the mountain, so let's gather on a weekly basis. Let's talk about the mountain. Let's look at the mountain together. Let's pray to the mountain. Let's worship the mountain. Let's encourage one another about the mountain every time we come together. Let's be that kind of church. How about it? We could never be anything close or anything like being the people of God. It would always be just us. The mountain would be irrelevant. We had fabricated the whole thing. We'd look for something to fill the need. We'd look to the mountain. we put the mountain there, but it was all us. And yet the Bible tells a story about something entirely different. God makes the people of God. God puts his people together. God steps into history. God calls a man. God develops a nation. God goes and retrieves this nation. It is all about the work of what God is doing. This is the God of the people of God. He makes the people of God. He develops the people of God. And it's accomplished in one way. He accomplished it by sending his son. He accomplished it by sending his son. Go inherit, inherit your inheritance, the people of God. They're for you to win. They're for you to purchase. And Jesus comes and lays down his life. And this is the power to purchase hearts for God, to draw people to be a part of the people of God. To realize the history and the context of Ezra chapter 2 is to realize that this truly is a monument to God himself. And for us as a local church, for Christians everywhere, we, we, we want to be so diligent to always keep this truth in the forefront of our hearts and minds that we exist because of and for Christ, not ourselves. It's an extremely important point, an extremely important aspect of who we are, that we recognize that as the people of God, we are the people of God because of what God has done. Edmund Clowney said it this way, to be sure, if the church, rather than Christ, becomes the center of our devotion, spiritual decay has begun. If the church, instead of Christ, becomes our focus and the center of our devotion. He goes on to say, a doctrine of the church that does not center on Christ is self-defeating and false. Together we must make clear that it is to Christ and not to ourselves that we witness. Friends, we are, we are so committed to being a Christ-centered church. It is about him. It is about what he has done. It is not primarily about us. The first thing to know about the people of God is to know the God of the people of God. He calls us, makes us his people. Second point, the people of the people of God. In this account... There are two absolute characteristics that reveal the identity of the people of God. And they have to do with God's word and they have to do with God's spirit. First, God's word. Now, 
you remember if you've been here a while, we studied through the book of Jeremiah together. And I don't know if you remember in Jeremiah chapter 24, God gave to Jeremiah a vision of two baskets of figs. This is jogging everybody's memory. Two baskets of figs. One were very good and one were very rotten. Good figs, bad figs. Good figs, really, really good figs. Bad figs, really, really bad. It said so bad you couldn't eat them. And this is right at the time where Jeremiah is telling the people, this is prior to the exile, and Jeremiah is saying, this is the word of the Lord. This is what God's word is saying. I'm sending Babylon to come and take you captive, and I want you to go with them freely. In other words, I want you to surrender. Now, when Jeremiah prophesied these two baskets of figs, the the common understanding in the perception would be, if we stay and defend ourselves and we don't yield to Babylon, we'll be the good figs. But if we surrender and we're carried off to Babylon, we'll be the bad figs. We'll be ruined. And Jeremiah says, no, God is saying precisely the opposite. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, like these good figs, so I will regard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I have sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. The list in Ezra chapter 2 only came from the people who said yes to God's word in that situation that went into exile. Those were the ones that responded and said, even though what God's word said is so counterintuitive, it doesn't bode well with my personal sensibilities. I wish God would have said something different. Nevertheless, God spoke this. Therefore, we will go. From that group, this group comes out. If they didn't respond to God's word, they couldn't make it into Ezra chapter 2. They weren't in the running. They weren't even there. They were lost. They were gone. Secondly, in Ezra chapter 1, verse 5, it says, Everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord. Now, here's an activity of the Holy Spirit in these people's lives. So, first, there's sort of a sorting out all of Israel. Will you obey the word? How will you respond to God's word? Okay, yes, we surrender. We will, we will go according to the word of the Lord. Now that we're there. Now, it's time to go back. Now the Lord's calling us back. Now, who will go? Oh, everyone in whose heart the Spirit of the Lord stirred, we will go back. Not all Israel went into exile. Not all of them came out of exile. Each time, there's a sorting. And the two identity markers in these people that came back that are listed in Ezra chapter 2, your spiritual heritage, they had two characteristics, two qualities. They responded to God's word, and they had the Spirit of God at work in their hearts. The same is true for the people of God today. People, a converted person reads the Bible differently. A regenerated heart opens the Bible and sees something beyond mere words, beyond an ordinary book, beyond a history book. When a regenerated heart opens up the scriptures and begins to read, something is taking place. They are reading these words, knowing that these words came from the heart and mouth of God himself. I remember when I first became a Christian, about nine or ten years old, one of the most noticeable changes was the Bible. 
all of a sudden, I was reading a book that was God speaking to me, seeing me. This book knows me. This book is speaking to my heart. It came alive. Characteristic of the people of God is a unique relationship with the Word of God. When we read our Bibles, the warnings make us tremble. The promises make us feel secure. No words encourage us quite like the words that God speaks, and no words persuade us and move us more than when we know and hear that it is the Lord speaking those words. We read our Bibles very, very differently. These words are life to us. Whether they're correcting, encouraging, strengthening, rebuking, instructing. However they come, we're there to receive them. Because we're the people of God. And one of the things that qualifies us, that characterizes us as the people of God is how we relate to his word. Closely related to this is that God has given us his spirit to dwell inside of us. The people of God have the spirit of God in them, working in them, speaking to them, moving them, persuading them, illuminating their hearts, instructing them, teaching them, reminding them, guiding them. We would... We would never remain on the right path without the Word of God, and we would never continue and reach the goal without the Spirit there with us the entire way. Characteristics of the people of God, the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Philippians 2.13, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. This is something that God is doing in the hearts, in the lives of His people Third point, the vitality of the people of God. We have the God of the people of God. We have the people of the people of God, and we have the vitality of the people of God. Our chapter lays out the constitution of the people of God and begins with leaders. The first verses that I read, the second verse, I believe it is, list 11 names. And back in chapter 1, there is a name added, Sheshbazar, in verse 8 of chapter 1, giving us 12 names of leaders. Twelve is significant. God communicates something when he lines up twelve, especially twelve leaders. Israel had twelve sons. These were the twelve tribal heads. When God uses a series of twelve, a group of twelve, it is, it is signaling a sense of authority. It is signaling a sense of completion. Completion in the sense that now we have everything we need to move forward. Now everything is in place. We're ready to proceed. We have all 12 standing across the front. We're ready. It's complete. We can move forward. Israel had 12 sons. We're ready to build a nation. Our setting, God is reestablishing his people and he puts forward 12 leaders. Jesus chose 12 to be his disciples. When he had all 12 and he had them trained and prepared, okay, we have all the 12 lined up. We're ready to proceed. We're ready for the book of Acts. We're ready for Jesus to finish his mission on the earth and leave the earth and entrust it to the 12. And it's emphasized in Acts chapter 1 when the one who fell away, who betrayed the Lord. How urgent. They all sense the need. We've got to find his replacement. The scriptures tell us we need his replacement because we need 12. Because when we've got the 12 leaders, we're ready to move forward. It's just a way of God communicating to us. And then when we turn to the book of Revelation, we get towards the end and God is describing the new Jerusalem. It's just filled with 12s everywhere. There's 12 gates. There's 12 angels. There's 12 names of the 12 tribes written over the gates. It's all a means of God communicating, okay, we've got it all wrapped up. It's all complete. 
Everything's in place. Everything is right. It all fits together now. And here in Ezra chapter 2, God gathers up this group and sends them from Babylon back to Judah, back to Jerusalem. I don't know if you noticed this, but the number is really not that large. Very specific, 42,360. Think about this. This was, this was once a nation. Once a nation. And now the group going back, 42,360. That's a relatively small group. It's the population of Altadena. That's half the Rose Bowl. Okay? More people go to a USC game than the group that came and made this journey. About half. Maybe you noticed, a couple of you are numbers people, maybe you noticed that the numbers didn't add up. We didn't read every verse, but if you were to go through here and get your calculator out and start adding up, sons of 937, and click, 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 and adding up all the numbers, and then all of a sudden it lists 42,000, and you realize, um, not the same. The explanation, supposedly, is that we're looking at sons, we're looking at the male population, and not including the, the female population. So we have a total listing here of X number, and then we have the total of 42,000. That would leave the ratio of men to women with about two to one. Two men for every one female, which doesn't sound so great. Sounds like a problem, but, but could very well be legitimate. Think about this. Okay, church, we're going to go on a construction E-team, and it's 1,000 miles away. We're going to go build something. We're going to go build a building. We're going to rebuild a city. We want you to sign up. Who will go? It's 1,000 miles away, and by the way, we're walking. Now, all of a sudden, the male-female ratio, two to one, might not be too far off. Probably the single men were leading the, leading the charge here. The men stepping forward, the nature of the trip, the nature of the journey, one way of explaining. But the point is that the group was relatively small. God was beginning to re-engage, to restart this work of the people of God. And a wonderful promise in Zechariah chapter 4 tells us that it is, it is very nearsighted to despise small beginnings. This is just God at work proving that he accomplishes things by his spirit and not by might. Don't despise the day of small beginnings. It was a small group, but that's all God needed to begin a great work. Listen to this quote from Matthew Henry. In God's work, the day of small things is not to be despised. Though the instruments be weak and unlikely, God often chooses such by them to bring about great things. As a great nation becomes a plain before him when he pleases, so a little stone cut without hands comes to fill the earth. See Daniel 2.35. Though the beginnings be small, God can make the latter end greatly to increase. A grain of mustard seed may be come a great tree let not the dawning light be despised for it will shine more and more to the perfect day the day of small things is the day of precious things and will be the day of great things here our writer begins to break down first listing the congregation based on birth records and previous addresses in the first several verses of this chapter it shifts from sons of men, of fathers, and sons of men, of cities. And so we begin to see the congregation getting populated. And then we read the first verse of the priests. The primary purpose of this return from exile was to rebuild the temple and to restore the prescribed worship in the temple to the Lord. These were the priests, the descendants of Aaron, who were given access to God, access into the temple, to perform the sacrifices prescribed, they had specific worship responsibilities that they and they alone had to carry out. 
Then there were the Levites. These were a gift to the priest to help manage all the servicing of the temple. They would make sure the priests had all they needed to do their job so they could do what God had called them to do. Here were mentioned singers and gatekeepers as part of this group here. Then added to this temple servants, the writer goes on, another level of service to come alongside the Levites that served the priest. And the chapter closes with the generosity of the people of God. How some of them made freewill offerings to the house of the Lord and it lists all the offering that came in and all the surplus that was there. One of the characteristics of this study through Ezra and Nehemiah is that it's miraculous on a different level, of a different kind. Everything, it's showing God at work, God moving, but no outstanding supernatural things. It's all God's Spirit working in and through His people. He doesn't drop a pile of gold out of the sky miraculously, he works on the hearts of people and they begin to contribute. And out of their free will, they bring and they provide. And we see, we'll see in time, the walls get rebuilt, the temple gets rebuilt, the supply is there, all that's needed is there. God provides the people, the varieties of people. As Derek Kidner said, all a monument to God's care. Friends, so the church today is constituted by God with a variety of gifts, a variety of groups, a variety of gifts. God puts the body together. The New Testament declares us now all part of God's holy priesthood, all believers, priests in God's household, every one of us access to God. And our offerings, our sacrifices are that of praise and thanksgiving so we all function and operate in a priestly capacity and in the body god gives gifts by the spirit to every member of the body first corinthians 12 lists wisdom knowledge faith healing miracles prophecy discernment tongues and interpretation of tongues all empowered by the spirit given for the building up of the body Romans 12, 8 through 10, lists prophecy, faith, service, teaching, exhortation, generosity, leading, zeal, mercy, cheerfulness. Cheerfulness. Did you know that? Cheerfulness is a gift of the Spirit. You probably know somebody who has that gift. Later in verse 28, adding helps and administration. Picture of God's people in the New Testament is a church that every member has a part to play and every part is valuable. There are no more significant, less significant. Everyone has a role to play. Everyone comes with a part to play. Everyone is a priest. Did you notice when we read that there were a group of singers were part of this? Could I just say a word about singing? I don't know if you realize this. All of you have the ministry of singing. That is your ministry. When we gather together corporately and we start singing, the worship team is up here to exhort and encourage all of you in your ministry of singing. It is not for you to just observe and listen to the worship team and them to perform for you to enjoy singing. They are designed to help you sing. You have the ministry of singing. That is what we are doing for those first 25 minutes of our meetings. It's all our voices singing to the Lord. That's our calling That's our place. That's our ministry. That's what we're called to do in the congregation. The greeters at the door, the personal encouragement that takes place in the one-on-one conversations in the hallway, the one who stands up and leads us in prayer, or the one who preaches, all part of the same life of worship, 
all called to function together, all called to serve the body in some way. No spectators, no passive, uninvolved members. Everyone has a place. Everyone has a part to play. We have a few verses about these poor souls that lost their driver's license, lost their birth certificate, couldn't find their paperwork. What are we going to do with these people? They can't prove that they belong to Israel. They can't find their paperwork, and they can't prove it. So time out, hold off. You're going to have to hold back until we can get a priest to discern and consult the Lord and determine. Certainly some may have passed and become a part. Some may have not. I don't know if you realize this, but we do not have a foolproof membership process here at Sovereign Grace. We walk you through, we teach you, I talk with you, I ask you questions, I hear from you. The question is, are you genuinely a member of the body of Christ? Do you know the Lord? Is the Spirit at work in you? quite sure that most of the time we get it right. I certainly hope so, but you know it's not uncommon for the Spirit of God to work in somebody's heart and somebody's life and for the testimony to finally come out and say, you know, I sat in church for years. I thought I was a Christian. I thought I knew the Lord. I had never crossed my mind to even necessarily ask the question. I thought everything was okay. And then the Lord opened my eyes like they've never been opened before. And all of a sudden I realized this is not that. <laughs> what I was yesterday is not what I am today. Something has changed. Something is different. I thought I was in. Now I'm in. And it shows me that I wasn't in before. Have you ever heard a testimony like that? Do you have a testimony? Something like that. How many of us thought everything was fine before things were actually fine? In closing, Ezra chapter 2 certainly had a present-day function. The list gets duplicated almost exactly later in Nehemiah chapter 7. A couple slight variations. Nehemiah uses this list years later to encourage God's people. It's like pulling out your Ancestry.com packet and reading through your lineage and your history. And being encouraged by where you've come from, by what God has done throughout generations, bringing you to the place that you are. That you can look back and you can see God's hand at work, knowing that the real people of God were the people that were responding to God's word and moved by God's spirit to make this trip back to rebuild the temple and the city to reestablish the people of God. You know, many of you know that the Bible talks about a true and ultimate book of life. God has a list of names. This is what the Bible presents to us. Now, whether there's actually a physical book or however this is in the mind of God, it certainly is written for us to picture in our mind that there is a book of names. And what the Bible teaches is that if your name is written in that book, you are brought into eternal life. In other words, it does give the picture of somebody sort of checking at the gate. Is your name here? Think about this. Just imagine with me if we could get our hands on our copy of the book of life. 
God, could you send a copy down that just has us, our part in it? And could you imagine if we were to lay this book open on a table out front and say, friends, I want you all to just come and just file by and look at the book. I know many of you are secure in your faith. You know that you belong to the Lord. But tell me this, wouldn't it make a difference if you came walking by? I mean, this is the book. God's handwriting in it. And you walked by this book. And you looked, you checked the list, and there it was. You saw your name written in that book. Tell me that wouldn't do something for your soul to encourage and secure you. It would add security on top of security. It would heap assurance on top of assurance to see that God has written your name in his book, knowing his promises. If I've written your name in my book, it's not coming out. I have no eraser, have no need for one. You're mine. You are a member of the people of God. I've got you down. Now there also is another possibility that you would come by and you would look and you would look and you would look and you would not find your name in that book. And here's where that hard, strong warning from the scriptures come. If your name is not found in this book, then you will be cast out. Revelation says, if your name is not found, you will be cast out into the lake of fire. If your name is not in this book, what that means is that you have rejected the grace of God in Christ. The appeal, the offer, the warning, God sending his son, I've made a way, I've given you access. Here's how it works. You can enter in. He's the door. You can come through the door, and you can enter into eternal life. And I will heap on you a glorious inheritance. And if you say no, the name doesn't get documented in the book. I think, I'm sure, Rightly so, that ought to be a terrifying thought for any of us. But here's the good news. The book isn't finished yet. Today is still the day of salvation. The offer is still available, still pending, still given. The universal appeal from Christ, come all who are weary, come all who are needy, come find your rest, come to Christ. And the coming to Christ is not complicated. It's repentance and faith. Turn, believe. Stop running the direction you're running. Turn around. Come to him. Surrender. Receive. Trust. Believe. It's true. God sent him. He's the one. He made the way. He is the door. He is the bread. He can feed. He can supply. He's for you. It would be a sobering moment to come and flip through that book and not see your name. But what a joy to make a turn in your heart and come to him and almost see the hand of God writing that name into that book, securing 
your present blessing, your future blessing, your eternity. Let's have the worship team come on up. It's a glorious thing that the grace of God is available to us. And I know that most of us sitting in the room are just saying yes and amen, and we are so grateful that the grace of God found its way. I'm so grateful that in my DNA packet, I found one of those names in Ezra chapter 2 on my list of my spiritual heritage. Friend, if it's not there, let's put it there. Let's get it there. Let's turn. Let's come. Let's surrender. Let's yield. Why would you say no to this? Let's stand together. Father in heaven, for most of us in the room, we would say with some wonderful level of assurance that we are the people of God and we would say together, we are only the people of God because of the God of the people of God. That you sought us, that you saved us, that you chose us, that you called us, that your spirit has worked in us and called us your own. For this we're forever grateful. You've eliminated any opportunity for us to boast in and of ourselves. But in that place of boasting, you've filled our hearts with gratitude and thankfulness. Let us live in the good of that. Father, if there's any ears hearing my words this afternoon that don't know you, that are not listed in the book of life, would you send your spirit quickly and pierce their hearts and call them and draw them to yourself. May there be a response of surrender and acceptance, of repentance and of faith. Change a life, make a new life. You took a whole nation that was dead to you because of their rejection of you. And now we read in our history book in our spiritual history book, how you worked to call them back and to build again. Do it for your glory in our hearts, in this church, in Jesus' name.